Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have part two of a five-part series where we're going to focus in on the first few weeks of the Iraq War in 2003. Now, most of the podcast, most of the shows here bounce around from one conflict to the other, and I thought we'd try something out where we group a series of events together. Maybe it's a battle, maybe it's a short period of time within an overall conflict, and we'll talk through those events to kind of keep the story going while still diving into the individual acts from soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines on the battlefield. So our first episode, if you want to go back and listen to that, focused on hospital apprentice Luis Fonseca and his actions during the Battle of Nasiriyah in southern Iraq. That was kind of the first major battle the Marines found themselves in after they crossed the berm from Kuwait into Iraq in March of 2003. Another big part of that episode is really the lead up to the Iraq war. So one of the reasons I wanted to try these, you know, kind of mini series, if you will, was we, we talked for a fair amount about the lead up to war and why the United States was looking at Iraq in the first place and, and the ultimatum for Saddam and his sons to leave. And then bam, the U.S. crosses the border. A few days after that, they're in Nasiriyah and Luis Fonseca Hospital um, Apprentice Luis Fonseca is awarded the Navy Cross for his actions during that fight. Now that'll flow right into our next story today, where we're going to talk about First Lieutenant Brian Shantosh, who was serving with Weapons Company, part of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines in the 1st Marine Division. So after wrapping up the Battle of Nasiriyah, well, I say wrapping up, but the we'll say the main Wrapped up as in the United States held the three bridges that were required, especially the second two um, over a river and then over the Saddam Canal. The United States, the Marines were able to take those critical, critical bridges, but it said something. It said something that the Iraqi military didn't destroy those. And what it said was that they were still pretty confident in their ability to withstand the American attack. If you think about World War II as Germany was retreating, they knew they were retreating. They knew they were falling back. The, the Allied firepower is too much for them, and they were destroying bridges as they went to make the Allied advance that much slower. Not destroying these bridges and canals, key crossings on the American advance to Baghdad, at this point in the war, days in, I mean, you can almost measure this point in, in, in hours, it's the first hundred hours of the conflict. Confidence is, is relatively high, I think we could say, on the, on the Iraq military side. But it is worth noting that Nasiriyah was not the main effort. In fact, the Marines' advance from south to north towards Baghdad is not the main effort. The main effort within the overall, um, within the overall battle plan is going to be focused on the 3rd Infantry Division even further west of the Marines. So Nasiriyah is targeted as an area where we need to open up this, this additional line of communication, additional line of supply. So the 1st Marine Division branches off some units over there to go uh, to go clear and hold those bridges in Nasiriyah. Now, they held the bridges, but there was still quite a bit of urban fighting. But if you're Saddam and the Ba'ath Party leadership at this point, you don't really know how the war is playing out in front of you like we do today. 
I mean, we can look at a map now and say exactly where these units were and who they were faced off against. Saddam didn't have that luxury. Now, part of that was intentional and deliberate. I mean, we took actions to destroy communications networks. Then there were feints and, um, and attempts to disguise American movement all over Iraq. And we're going to get into that into, in a later episode, kind of the extent of the deception plan in the invasion of Iraq. But as American forces moved through Nasiriya, tanks, armored personnel carriers, logistics vehicles, you know, fuelers, tankers, infantry, everything moves through Nasiriya. It's not overly clear to the Iraq military if that's the main effort and that's kind of the direction that the Marines are headed or where else these forces are pushing into their country. So what they're going to see in Nasiriya is, is reason for confidence, if you will. That battle in Nasiriya would take a couple days, really kind of wrapped up. Still some fighting, lots of fighting in the streets after the fact, but the bridges were held and generally speaking, it was was cleared of at least initial contact after a couple days. That battle would cost the lives of 32 Americans. 32. That's a heavy toll early in the war. It's a heavy toll for a, a few days in the Iraq or Afghanistan wars throughout. There'd be 60 Americans wounded, six captured. Remember just before... Um, Fonseca and his men ended up moving into Nasiriya, uh, private first class, Jessica Lynch and the 507th, I believe was the transportation company that was ambushed and, and soldiers were taken captive. That's what the Iraq military is going off of right now. They destroyed over 15 vehicles in Nasiriya. So if they're looking at that as the first major toe to toe engagement with the U S military, Hey, maybe that was the main American force. And if it was, and we killed, and, and, and we, the Iraqis, if the Iraqis could say, hey, we killed 30 plus Americans, wounded 60 more, and destroyed over 15 vehicles, destroyed vehicles littering the streets of Nasiriya, hey, maybe it's not that bad of a showing. Maybe we've got a fighting chance here. Now, it's worth saying at this point that the fight is changing. It's adapting. As any warfare does throughout history, you're, you're going to see... People make changes to their tactics and their strategies in order to stay alive and in order to well, just adapt to the battlefield, what's given to them on the battlefield. And this is very, very early in the fight, but already we're starting to see the Iraq military adapt. One of the ways they're adapting is a shift from what we'll call conventional to unconventional warfare to make it, to make it easy. It's not a fair fight. The United States versus Iraq on a conventional battlefield is not a fair fight in, in March of 2003. Iraq had a formidable military, certainly in size of personnel, in, in amount of equipment. Um, but over time, that equipment was not as well maintained as it maybe could have been. The military um, wasn't kept to the fighting standard that they, they maybe could have been. So when the United States invades, the actual fighting power, the actual strength of the military might be a little bit closer to half of what Iraq lists their military strength as. And the equipment's going to be outdated. Well, heck, in Nasiriya, they're going to come across some tanks hiding underneath a bridge. And a couple of them are what you and I think of as tanks. But one of them can't move. It's immobile. It's like a pillbox that's just stationed there as a fighting position. Um pretty easily knocked out by the Marines that day, but it's that kind of thing that we're going to see across the Iraqi military where 
the United States doesn't enter Iraq with a lot of tanks that are just stationary pillboxes, right? Um, Iraq's going to have quite a few of those. And in turn, the conventional fight on the battlefield is not fair, but that's what the United States was hoping for. We don't want a fair fight in war. So the Iraq military starts to adapt. The Iraq military and government, I'll say, starts to adapt. One of the ways they adapt is realizing that the United States has complete air superiority and moving armored columns or any military column really at all is a death wish. It's very, very challenging for the Iraqis to reinforce areas. Like, look, by March 23rd, Saddam and his leadership know that the Americans are coming from the South. They don't know if that's the only advance, but they at the very least know there's Marines and army units moving up from the South right now and they're killing his people. They're taking his towns, they're securing these roads, they're coming. But it's very, very hard to reinforce those units because if you put any sort of military equipment on the roads at all, day or night, there's American air power that's going to find and likely destroy those. So what you start to see pretty early in the fight is this adaptation to, like I mentioned, unconventional warfare. And that can, that's a wide ranging term. And, and how I'm using it here is to say that fighters that were moving into the area, and I'm intentionally using the term fighters rather than soldiers, because pretty early we do start to see a mix, a mix of regular army, as well as, you know, maybe some reservist type folks, as well as, as civilians taking up national defense um, or the defense of their country. So I'm going to start using the term fighters and to get those fighters to the front lines that's moving from South to North towards Baghdad, you're not going to use armored personnel carriers. It'd be nice if you could, but they're going to be destroyed on the road well before they hit the front lines. You can use buses or ambulances or, or taxis or cars or motorcycles or pickup trucks or anything. The United States is not, not indiscriminately blowing up every vehicle that comes within you know, 10 miles of, of their columns. The Iraqis notice this and recognize, generally speaking, the Americans will not fire until fired upon. So they're taking civilian vehicles to the front lines. They're wearing, they're, they're shedding their military uniform and wearing civilian attire. They are stashing their weapons in mosques. They are using hospitals as command centers and they are staging for attacks in schools. There's plenty of occurrences where pretty early on human shields were utilized. And this might be a way to try to make it sound better, but the idea here is to, to maybe help understand it a little better. Many of these fighters coming into the South were Saddam loyal to loyalists. Many were Sunni and the Southern parts of Iraq were heavily Shia or were heavily Shia. So you would see, Saddam, Ba'ath Party supporter, Sunni, maybe Fedayeen fighters coming down and utilizing Shia human shields from neighborhoods and districts and areas they've never had any relation to. So they're utilizing human shields in different parts of the country. It's not as though they're grabbing their family members, their friends and their colleagues and going out to fight. But that is going to be an occurrence. Nonetheless, we're seeing the fight start to shift pretty early to these unconventional tactics on the road as the Marines and army head, head south to north to Baghdad. And you might say, why? And we kind of hit on this earlier. Why on earth there's these armored columns moving along the road and you're going to abandon your tanks and fighting vehicles in favor of these 
unconventional tactics. It wasn't a 100% switch. We're going to see uh, both utilized, and there's going to be pretty heavy weapons and armored, the, the use of armored vehicles and tanks pretty well, I mean, for at least another month at this point. So it's not like a complete switch, but they are seeing relative success just in mortars, RPGs, machine gun fire against these American columns. So why not try it? That's what's happening right about the end of the Battle of Nasiriyah and the few days after. Now, I mentioned the Battle of Nasiriya is, you know, a sideshow is, is really writing it off more than I intend, but it's 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 not the focus of the first Marine the first uh, Marine Expeditionary Force. They're continuing to move north, and they have to. They're moving north as fast as they can because we have this idea that when the war starts out, and I think it's I think it's fair. I think it played out, but winning this war was not about killing the most or destroying the most Iraqi military units. It was about cutting the head off the snake. It was about removing Saddam and his cadre from power as quickly as possible. It, it's the, the reach that Saddam and the influence that Saddam had over his military was not drastically different than what you'd see for dictators all around the world. Hitler famously wouldn't release the Panzer divisions on D-Day and may have, they may have pushed the allies back into the water on Omaha and Utah, gold, Juno sword, he wouldn't release those because he was, he was asleep and authority rested with Hitler to move those panzer divisions. It, it's, it's a similar situation in Iraq with Saddam. This is, this is his country. This is his military. And there's going to be the idea that if we can get in there, get to Baghdad, the center of power and remove that leadership structure, it's going to provide a different environment around the country. We ideally is the hope are going to have a lot of the um, a lot of the oppressed, suppressed um, Shia rise up and help with the American um, transition of power to a new Iraqi government. Um, ideally, pointing out um, maybe some of these these high level Iraqi leaders that are on the run that we're trying to capture. So, at the end of the day, we got to get to Baghdad. We got to get to Baghdad fast. That is going to end the war faster than than you know digging in and fighting as the Iraqi military attacks north to south. So as the U.S. column, Army and Marine, is moving, well, different columns, but everybody's moving south to north, is moving, it's this weird mix of going really, really fast on a grand scale and really, really slow on the individual scale. So the American advance to Baghdad is an incredible feat, fighting the U.S. military fighting their way across Iraq through contested territory to Baghdad and then toppling Saddam and the Ba'ath Party in that amount of time is, is incredible. Very, 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 very fast throughout the history of warfare. But if you were on the ground in one of these columns moving across the Iraq desert, I don't know that there's very many times that you would say we were moving really, really fast. Because you're talking about thousands of vehicles and there's only a few roads that are being utilized to move the entire American military that's involved in the invasion into Baghdad. And what happens when there's one road with a lot of people on? It's a traffic jam. We've all been in a minute. It's it's the littlest thing. You know when you've been in the traffic jam and, and, and it's stop and go for 30 minutes then you finally get to where the thing that's holding it up and it's, it's like nothing. You know, it's a car 
broke down on the side of the road. It shouldn't even be stopping traffic, but everybody's slowing down just to look at it. And next thing you know, for five miles, it's backed up traffic. That doesn't only happen in Chicago during rush hour. That can happen on Highway 1 moving south to north during the American advance to Baghdad. And it does. This column has to continue moving day and night. But think of the things that can stop them in their tracks. It's such an incredibly long column, thousands of vehicles. The lead vehicle might, what if a vehicle breaks down? How about an ambush? Any sort of contact, that changes the, that changes the equation. We're certainly not going to, everybody's not going to be moving at the same pace if, if the Iraqi military opens up near ambush somewhere along the route. What if there's just something suspicious looking in the road? There are so many things that cause a convoy of that size to do that, that slinky effect, right? Out and back, out and back, sl- stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. There are stories. And then, of course, it's worth mentioning that at night, the, they're driving under blackout conditions, which means everything is as dark as possible, night vision goggles, but no lights because you're driving in a combat zone and there's people out there that are trying to kill you. Now, in a training environment, you might at some point say, hey, this turn is looking a little hairy. Let's throw some chem lights out or light up the path just to be safe. Or maybe you get to a point and say, hey, our soldiers are too tired. They've been driving under night vision goggles for six hours. Let's give them a break, reset, um, safety considerations. You don't get to do that in a combat zone. And unfortunately, because of that, there would be American casualties on the march to Baghdad that were killed because of this. There were people, there were vehicles, there were plenty of drivers that would fall asleep. Think about it. If you've been moving constantly for a few days straight in this heightened sense of stress and awareness, and then all of a sudden all the lights are off and you're going at three miles an hour, how long does it take you to fall asleep? Not crazy. People would fall asleep. They'd have to be woken up. And there are stories of vehicles um, ending up in, in rolling over into ditches and killing the, the crew one or more, um, hitting people on the road or, or even ending up in waterways and the crew drowning. It's, it's, it's tragic stuff. It's, it's, this, it's this monster of a convoy moving, moving south to north. But they have to go. Again, we have to get to Baghdad. And one of the things that's going to happen that they're going to continue to drive through on March 25th, I believe it was on the morning of March 25th, maybe the evening of March 24th, is a sandstorm rolls through. And it's worth looking up pictures, Googling Iraq sandstorm 2003, something along those, those lines to see what this looked like. But it was crazy. I mean, like like dark, like causing darkness, couldn't see anything kind of crazy. And it varied. It wasn't as though like this sandstorm came through and bam, you know, for the next 24 hours, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was just like, you know, think like a heavy rainstorm. It's going to come and go and there's going to be pockets and this and that. That's similar to how the sandstorm came in. But the Marines kept pushing. The military, the U.S. military kept pushing. They had to. But the sandstorm was so intense that you couldn't hardly breathe outside. Think of that. Even with a covering over your mouth, couldn't hardly breathe outside. So if it tells you, um, tells you how nasty that was, the Marines who at this point, by the 25th of, of March, maybe haven't showered in a week, rather than, than deal with that dust, choose to sit in their Humvees or Amtraks or tanks and close all the hatches and just deal with the smell for hours, sometimes even a whole day. 
They'd rather deal with that than risk that dust. So that might tell you how bad it is. There were stories. There are stories of Marines stepping out, Marines and soldiers. I'm, I'm in this case dialed in on um, on the Marines moving, the Marines movement. But but the, uh, the U.S. Army was to their west, having the same same exact issues. But within the Marines, at least, there were stories of uh, soldiers having to use cord to walk out to use the bathroom because they wouldn't be able to find their way back. And one soldier who didn't, one Marine who didn't, stepped out just a few feet to take a leak, turned around, couldn't see his Humvee. So tried to decide which way to go. And um, as he was walking back to his Humvee, bumped into a helicopter refuel point. I am pretty sure that if you're bumping into a helicopter refuel point, you were not right on the verge of bumping into your truck moving along Highway 1. So he ended up staying the night with that helicopter crew until the uh, until the dust settled down. He could find his guys once again. It's, it's that it's that thick. It's that nasty. But the Marines keep pushing. Now, on March 25th, 2003, the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines start to take the lead in the column moving north to Baghdad. Now, we were talking about how this unconventional fight is starting to wage, and there's reports. There's reports that more and more of these fighters are moving south out of Baghdad and the surrounding suburbs, in, you know, intending to meet the Marines on their march. So the Marines of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines are expecting a fight. And in turn, they place out front a few of their tanks as well as their anti-armor platoon. The anti-armor platoon commander was 1st Lieutenant Brian Shantosh. He was serving um, with Weapons Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, part of the 1st Marine Division. And as they're moving through the sandstorm, through pretty open desert, he is right out front with some of the, he's in a Humvee with his crew, anti-armor platoon leader. But then they've got got their tanks right alongside him. They're expecting contact. And and when you go back and read some of the history of, of this period of time, it's almost, there was something in the air. Everybody knew something was coming. Well, as they continue to move north, the terrain changes just a little bit. And it goes from wide open desert. Think, think flat open terrain. You can see for a long distance. You can see an enemy approaching from a long distance. Not very many places to hide. And it changes. And all of a sudden, there's some berms alongside the road. And there's some irrigation ditches. And it's not a lot. But it's just enough of a change that the enemy now has a place to hide. Now has a place to take cover. And those berms and ditches are not very far off the road they could be a pretty good spot to set an ambush. Shantosh points, talks to his, uh, his driver and his gunner and says, keep an eye on, on those berms there. It's this immediate terrain change. And, and as expected, as the column moves further into this new terrain, they're hit. They're hit by a what's considered to be about a battalion-sized force. Um, we'll say at least 200 200 to 400, maybe in that category. Again, we're not necessarily talking regular army. There's going to be a mix of volunteers and maybe reservists and local fighters and some foreign fighters still that's happening already. Um, two to 400 open fire on the Marine convoy on really on the bulk of third battalion, fifth Marines. Now they open up with small arms, AK 47s, machine guns and RPGs, recoilless rifles, Close range. Very quickly, there is at least one Marine killed. Corman was killed very early in the engagement. And Shantosh and his men are stuck because in front of them are these tanks. And the tanks are moving to get out of the kill zone, but they're not moving very fast. And Shantosh and his guys are in a Humvee. 
So they're a little more risk than being in a tank and they have to act. And he makes the decision like that. He says, turn into the fire and go. The driver turns the wheel towards the enemy fighters, floors it and moves directly into an area kind of between the berm and the trenches and stops as the truck sits kind of directly on top of some of these, you know, improvised machine gun positions that the enemy has set up. At this point, Shantosh's, uh, his, his truck has a 50 caliber machine gun on it. And that machine gun is manned, I believe, by a Corporal Thomas Franklin. Franklin opens fire at close range with that 50 cal and just starts hammering the Iraqi fighters hiding in this ditch that were taking cover in a ditch and behind a berm. And now there's a Marine Humvee right on top of them. Franklin starts hammering their positions, providing cover for Lieutenant Shantosh and a couple other Marines. I believe it was Lance Corporal Robert Kerman and Corporal Armin McCormick to jump out of the Humvee and start to clear this area on foot. Shantosh and the two Marines start moving through this, I'm going to say trench system. It, it's a trench system like you might see on the side of the interstate, the side of the highway. It's not like a World War I style trench system, but I think that's the best way to describe it. They start moving through and it's it's close range, deadly combat. And they are outnumbered, severely, severely outnumbered. They're moving through this trench, shooting, moving, shooting, moving, shooting, moving. And all of a sudden, Shantosh's rifle jams. He can't clear the jam. It's malfunctioning. It's not working. So he transitions to his sidearm. This is how many enemy fighters, how many targets there are in this trench. He expends all ammunition from his sidearm. So he picks up an AK-47 from a dead enemy fighter, works his way through all of that ammunition, picks up another AK-47 off, off yet another enemy fighter that he's killed, works his way through all of that ammunition. Then they find an RPG, and the group doesn't really know how to fire an RPG offhand. They figure it out. They fire an RPG, uh, the one that's sitting there, again, off an enemy fighter that they killed, into the remaining... Iraqi military or, or, or volunteers that are firing on the American column down the road. At this point, they start to make their way back into or back out to their vehicles and back out to the column. Shantosh, before they get back there, Shantosh has, is, is credited with killing at least 20 fighters, um, wounding many, many more, kind of breaking up this ambush and allowing his column to continue on. But before he gets back... We're going to see something that starts to take hold in, in this war and in Afghanistan that we'd see a little bit. And it was widespread and in, in mostly in terms of U.S. history, we're going to see it, it widespread in the Pacific theater. But nonetheless, as Shantosh is moving back to his, the Pacific theater of World War II, I'm sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around there. As Shantosh is moving back to his truck, having just destroyed this sizable enemy force and making the rest of them flee, they come across a enemy fighter that is pretending to be dead, wounded enemy fighter pretending to be dead, trying to pull the pin on a hand grenade to kill Shantosh and his men. Shantosh, at that, as he's standing there, looks down and has the rounds that he had tried to clear from his jammed rifle laying on the ground. So he picks one up, chambers around, kills the would-be attacker, and moves back to his vehicle to continue their march to Baghdad. Be about a day later, Shantash's men would be, you know, kind of a relief in place as you you rotate out the the units at the front of the column. 
for his actions that day, Shantosh would be awarded the Navy Cross. And the two Marines that stormed that trench with him, Corporal Armand McCormick and Armand McCormick and Lance Corporal Robert Kerman would, be, would both be awarded Silver Stars. Shantosh would go on to uh, continue service in the Marine Corps, would come home after this deployment and return and find himself leading a rifle company during the uh, first battle of Fallujah, I believe. So heck of a career that Marine had. But nonetheless, as the Marines are moving south to north, there's going to be a lot of these little engagements that don't have a name. This engagement doesn't have a name like the Battle of Nasiriya or the Battle of Basra or the Battle of Mosul or anything like that. This was just a fight. This was just an ambush that happened. And the enemy happened to choose a spot and happened to fire into an American force that had someone like First Lieutenant Brian Shantosh who drove into the fire, dismounted, and cleared that trench system, killing numerous enemy fighters and making many, many more flee, saving the lives of countless Marines in that column that would have otherwise been under fire for quite a bit of time. We'll wrap it up there for today for part two of our five-part series diving into the first few weeks of the Iraq War. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.